From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Would you recognize a serial killer if you rubbed elbows with him in a bar? Or if he struck up a conversation with you on a hiking trail? Maybe something about the person would set off alarm bells, especially if you found yourself alone with him. A sociopath or a psychopath can often present a charming demeanor, though. So most of us would never notice the predator in our midst. We might not realize the friendly stranger is a brutal murderer until we read the news the next day. I learned about the killing spree of John Fontenberry in a Facebook message from a reader named Brian Aker. Brian was an Associated Press correspondent in Juneau, Alaska in 1991 when he encountered Fontenberry at a bar on the night Fontenberry murdered his last victim. Brian said he talked to Fontenberry at the bar and saw him with the man he would murder a few hours later. Brian said, it was a weird experience. When I saw the news story in the Juno Empire and realized it was the same guy I had seen at the bar, it sent a shiver down my spine. He just seemed like any other loud, intoxicated guy at a bar on any Saturday night. Aker said the incident at the Juno bar was the closest he ever wanted to come to meeting a serial killer. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The FBI defines a spree killer as a person who commits two or more murders in different locations without a cooling-off period between the murders. This lack of a cooling-off period differentiates a spree killer from a serial killer. But what is the definition of a cooling-off period? If a murderer goes on a multi-state killing rampage over several days, he clearly fits the description of a spree killer. But what if his murder spans several months? Is he still considered a spree killer? Of course, his victims don't care how he is classified. But I think of a spree killer as someone who suddenly starts murdering people. What switch flips in a person's head to make him murder strangers? Has he always had the impulse to kill, but managed to keep it under control until some defining moment when he decides to embrace his inner demons? Although he fits the broad definition of a serial killer, John Joseph Fottenberry cannot easily be categorized as either a spree killer or a serial killer. He murdered at least five people in four different states over four months. The motive for his murders was not sexual, and he did not kill people he knew well. Instead, he chose his victims because each had something he wanted. He murdered a person stole either their money or their vehicle, or both, 
and then he moved on until he needed more money or another car. John Joseph Fottenberry was born on July 4, 1963, in New London, Connecticut. His father, a Navy seaman, was not married to his mother, and he wanted no part in raising his son. His mother married two times, but both of John's stepfathers ignored him and doled out beatings for the smallest infractions. Fottenberry once said that when he was young, he used an imaginary hammer to nail his and his sister's blankets to their beds so they would not be taken away by malicious forces. Fottenberry had several minor scrapes with the law, and he once stole a car in Atlanta, but was captured in Alabama when he left a gas station without paying for the gas. In 1985, Fottenberry's mother died from cancer, and he took her death hard. He remained close to his sister, but he began to battle alcohol and drug addiction. He worked as a long-haul trucker, traveling across the United States, but he had trouble holding on to a job, and his bosses often fired him for poor performance. During 1990, Fottenberry worked as a cross-country trucker for a company based in Portland, Oregon. In early November, he told his supervisor that he was quitting his job because he did not like the long hours the job required. After he left his truck driving job, Fottenberry spent a few days working at the Flying J Truck Stop in Portland, Oregon, where he helped load and unload trucks. While working at the truck stop, Fottenberry met Donald Nutley, and the two men began talking. Nutley told Fottenberry he had $10,000 in cash on him, and he also said he had several guns and invited Fottenberry to drive to Mount Hood to do some target shooting. Fottenberry accepted the invitation and spent the afternoon with Nutley, shooting at bottles. As they walked back to Nutley's car at the end of the day, Fottenberry shot a single 38 caliber round into Nutley's head. He stole Nutley's $10,000 and dumped his body in the wilderness near Mount Hood. When Nutley suddenly disappeared, a search ensued, but he was not found until April 21, 1991, when a hiker discovered his skull punctured by a bullet. Fottenberry next drove to Cincinnati, where he stayed with his sister for a short time, and then traveled to Connecticut to visit a friend. On his way back to Cincinnati in early February 1991, Fottenberry ran out of money. He stopped at the Pilot Truck Plaza in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, where he met Gary Farmer, a truck driver. Fottenberry told Farmer he needed money and Farmer said he would buy him breakfast and give him gas money in exchange for sex. Fottenberry seemed to agree with the deal, but after crawling into Farmer's truck, he shot Farmer once in the head with a 22 caliber handgun. He stole Farmer's watch, knife, and $40, and then moved Farmer's body to the truck's sleeping compartment. No one discovered Farmer's body for four days. After questioning others at the truck stop, the police released the sketch of a man who was a person of interest in the murder of Gary Farmer. 
Fottenberry next returned to Cincinnati to stay with his sister again. But on February 17, 1991, when he again ran out of money, he left her house on foot. He walked down Highway 125 in Cincinnati's eastern suburbs until he reached the on-ramp to Interstate 275, where he held out his thumb and began hitchhiking. Joseph Darren Jr., a divorced father and a data supervisor at the Community Mutual Blue Cross and Shield, had just dropped off his two daughters at their mother's house and was returning to his Miami Township home when he saw a hitchhiker standing beside the highway. Darren decided to be a good Samaritan and pulled over to the side of the road to offer the guy a ride. When the hitchhiker said he was trying to reach Columbus, Ohio, Darren offered to drive him 20 miles out of his way to a restaurant near the junction of Interstate 71, where he could more easily find a ride to Columbus. When Darren failed to show up at work the following two days and friends and co-workers could not find him, one of his co-workers filed a missing persons report. Authorities checked his house but could find no sign of Joseph Darren. A few days later, though, they began receiving messages that Darren's 1988 white Subaru had been spotted in Idaho and then in Portland, Oregon. Investigators tracked Darren's credit cards and learned someone had used them 25 times since Darren disappeared. On March 20, 1991, a motorist discovered the body of a man near River Downs in Anderson Township on the north bank of the Ohio River. Police soon identified the body as Joseph Darren. Bottenberry would later explain that once they arrived at the restaurant near Interstate 71, he got out of Darren's car and then reached back into the vehicle and shot Darren twice in the right side of the chest. The 22 caliber handgun he used to kill Darren was the same gun he'd used to shoot Gary Farmer in New Jersey. Fottenberry arrived in Portland, Oregon on February 24, 1991, and met a friend, Wes Hallbrook, at the local bar. Hallbrook invited Fottenberry and several other friends, including 32-year-old Christine Guthrie, to his home for a private party. The following day, Christine agreed to accompany Fottenberry to the coastal Silver Sands Motel in Rockaway Beach on the Oregon coast. The hotel owner reported seeing the pair, but Christine Guthrie never returned home. Christine's body was found on April 1st near the remote logging community of Timber, Oregon. It did not take the medical examiner long to determine Christine died from three gunshot wounds to her head. Fottenberry later stated that he and Guthrie spent a few days at the Silver Sands Motel, and then, on the return trip to Portland, he told her he wanted to show her something interesting in the woods. Guthrie innocently accompanied Fottenberry into the forest, where he fired three shots into the back of her head. Fottenberry then took Guthrie's bank credit card and her address book containing the pen for the card. He left her body in the woods and returned to Portland, where he used Guthrie's card 
to make cash withdrawals. Fontenberry was still driving Darren's white Subaru, and he must have realized it was only a matter of time before authorities caught up with him. In early March, Fontenberry drove to the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, where he abandoned Darren's car in the parking lot and bought a one-way ticket to Juneau, Alaska. Let me take a short break to thank everyone at the puzzle game app Best Fiends for supporting Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I appreciate you for sponsoring my podcast. According to the calendar, it is spring, but winter has not yet released its steely grasp on Alaska. This is a tough time of year for me, while I wait for spring to explode here on Kodiak with a vivid pink, purple, yellow, and white wildflowers and the emerald ferns, alders, willows, and cottonwoods. Right now, though, I look out my window and all I see is brown and white. Thank you, best fiends, for your bright, funny insects and vivid yellow flowers, blue raindrops, red strawberries, green leaves, and purple mushrooms. This represents spring for me. Best Fiends is much more than a bright, cheerful game, though. Each level challenges me in a different way. Like solving a crime mystery, I must analyze the scene and plan how I can complete the puzzle and move on to the next level. If you already play Best Fiends, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't tried Best Fiends yet, what are you waiting for? Give it a try. Challenge your mind and improve your mood at the same time. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. In Juneau, Fottenberry moved into the downtown Bergman Hotel and found a job as a deckhand on a commercial fishing boat. Fottenberry began drinking heavily after he arrived in Alaska, and he was soon fired from his job on the boat. On March 13th, Fottenberry met Jefferson DeFee at a local bar. DeFee was a miner who worked at the Greens Creek Silver Mine, and he and Fottenberry seemed to hit it off. John Fottenberry must have had a charming personality and the ability to make people feel sorry for him. Defee felt bad when he learned Fottenberry was on his own in a strange new place, so he invited Fottenberry back to his condominium. Once they arrived at Defee's home, Fottenberry thanked him for his kindness by handcuffing and beating Defee and then fatally stabbing him 17 times. He then stole Defee's wallet, bank card, and a 9mm handgun. The next day, Fottenberry withdrew $400 from Defee's account. When Defee's co-workers filed a missing person report, police quickly responded, and they soon learned Defee was last seen leaving a bar with John Fottenberry. They found Defee's body at his condo, 
and discovered Fontenberry's fingerprints at the crime scene. Authorities were already suspicious of Fontenberry because they had recently linked him to Darren's stolen car. They arrested Fontenberry in his hotel and charged him with DeFee's murder. When they searched Fontenberry's hotel room and storage locker, they found not only DeFee's wallet and gun, but also Darren's briefcase, wristwatch, and Bible. On March 17, 1991, while in custody in Alaska, Fottenberry called FBI agent Larry Ott. He left a message for Ott saying he wanted to talk. Agent Ott went to the jail and informed Fottenberry of his Miranda rights. Fottenberry waived his rights and confessed to the murders of Nutley, Farmer, Darren, Guthrie, and Defee. Fottenberry accurately described how he killed each victim and he told Tom Nelson of the Portland Police Department where he could find Nutley's body. He claimed robbery was his only motive for the murders, and he said he killed because he needed money. Fottenberry also confessed to murdering 25-year-old Richard Combs in Roseburg, Oregon, in 1984. According to Fottenberry, he met Combs in a park, and the two began drinking alcohol. Fottenberry said the more he drank, the angrier he got about recently being fired from his job. He said when his anger turned to rage, he stabbed Combs in the throat and dumped his body on the freeway. This last confession proved problematic for authorities since Michael T. Collier had already confessed and pleaded guilty to manslaughter in the Combs case. Collier later recanted his confession, though. So did he kill Richard Combs, or did John Fontenberry murder Combs? Why would Fontenberry lie about murdering Combs? In the end, authorities decided not to pursue Fontenberry's confession in the Combs case, and they charged Fontenberry with five murders. In August 1991, Fottenberry pleaded guilty in an Alaska court to the murder of Jefferson DeFee. The court sentenced him to 99 years and then transferred Fottenberry to Hamilton County, Ohio. A grand jury in Ohio charged Fottenberry with two counts of aggravated murder in Joseph Darren's death, aggravated robbery, and killing Darren as part of a course of conduct involving the purposeful killing of two or more persons. Fottenberry waived his rights to a jury trial and proffered a no-contest plea to all counts in the indictment. In Ohio, though, when a capital defendant waives his rights to a jury trial, he is instead tried by a three-judge panel. Also, even though Fottenberry entered a no-contest plea, the prosecution still must produce evidence in court to prove aggravated murder. The prosecution presented the three-judge panel with the murder weapon and other physical evidence and with transcripts of Fottenberry's confessions to Agent Ott and others. The panel found Fottenberry guilty on all counts in the indictment, and they accepted his no-contest plea. In September 1992, the three-judge panel convened a sentencing hearing. During the hearing, the defense presented testimony from Fottenberry psychologist Nancy Schmidt-Gosling and some of Fottenberry's friends, 
the psychologist testified that she determined Fottenberry was well within the average range of intelligence and he showed no signs of organic mental impairment. She emphasized Fottenberry's dysfunctional childhood when his father and stepfathers frequently abused, humiliated, rejected, and finally abandoned him. Dr. Schmidt-Gosling said Fottenberry exhibited a mixed personality disorder with narcissistic tendencies, and his abuse of alcohol and drugs compounded this disorder. She said she believed Fottenberry's killing spree would have continued if the police in Juneau had not arrested him. Fottenberry testified in front of the three-judge panel, describing some of his childhood memories. He recalled instances when his father and stepfathers inflicted emotional abuse on him and his mother. He said his abuse of alcohol and drugs began in high school and led to his downfall. He asked the panel of judges for leniency and requested a life sentence so he would have an opportunity to work with other children of abuse. The defense also presented videotaped testimony from two of Fottenberry's friends who talked about Fottenberry's history, character, and background. A family friend spoke about Fottenberry's difficult childhood, and a former girlfriend said she knew Fottenberry as kind, caring, and sometimes overly protective. Fottenberry's aunt also testified about Fottenberry's childhood and the abuse he suffered from his father and stepfathers. The prosecution presented six witnesses during the sentencing hearing. Five were police officers from the states where Fottenberry committed the murders, and the sixth was FBI agent Larry Ott. The law enforcement officers each described the details of the crimes in their various jurisdictions. The three-judge panel weighed the testimony and found it was beyond a reasonable doubt that the aggravating factors sufficiently outweighed the mitigating factors. The panel imposed the death penalty on John Fottenberry for the murder of Joseph Darren. John Fottenberry committed five brutal murders in four states simply to pay for his cross-country trip. Joseph Darren, a good Samaritan, stopped to offer Fottenberry a ride, and he even agreed to drive 20 miles out of his way to drop Fottenberry near the junction of Interstate 71. Fottenberry rewarded Darren for his generosity with two fatal shots to his chest. Fottenberry admitted that Darren did nothing to aggravate him. Under Ohio law, the calculated murder of an innocent individual mandates the death penalty. After the panel of judges imposed the death penalty on Fottenberry, he was extradited to New Jersey, where he pleaded guilty to manslaughter in the murder of Gary Farmer. Fottenberry filed several appeals asking for a commutation of his death sentence in Ohio to life in prison, but the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals denied each request. By 2009, Fottenberry had exhausted all possible avenues for appeal and parole, and in early July, Ohio Governor Ted Strickland denied clemency for him. On Monday, July 13, 2009, Fottenberry was transferred from the Ohio State Penitentiary in Youngstown to the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville, where prison officials were preparing for his execution. 
Fontenberry requested a last meal of two eggs sunny side up, fried potatoes, two pieces of fried bologna, four pieces of wheat bread, two pieces of wheat toast with butter, four slices of tomato, a side of lettuce and mayonnaise, two Three Musketeers bars, and two packages of Reese's peanut butter cups. He requested and received sedatives, and guards said he seemed calm. Prison officials repeatedly asked him if he would like to call his sister, but he declined. He spent most of his last afternoon and evening watching television and talking to a priest. He fell asleep at 11.30 p.m. and slept until a guard awakened him at 6 a.m. The Supreme Court denied a stay of execution less than two hours before prison officials injected Fottenberry with a lethal combination of drugs. He elected not to make a final statement. Joseph Darren's 23-year-old daughter, Rachel, and her mother came to the prison, but they did not watch the execution of the man who killed Rachel's father. Rachel said it was enough to see Fottenberry's body loaded into the hearse and finally know it was over. Rachel said she wasn't disappointed Fottenberry didn't make a final statement, because I know he's not sorry. He didn't care. The FBI attached the serial killer tag to John Fontenberry, and reporters compared him to other serial killers of the era, such as Ted Bundy. Fontenberry did not like being called a serial killer and insisted the label did not apply to him because he murdered simply for money, not for sexual or personal satisfaction. My thanks to Brian Aker for suggesting that I research John Fottenberry and his crimes. Brian's story about meeting the serial killer made me shudder. I learn about the crimes I profile in various ways, but many tips come from readers and listeners. I encourage all my Alaska listeners to contact me if they know of a murder or murders I have not yet covered. I enjoy hearing from all of you, so please leave a message or contact me if you have a comment, question, or just want to say hi. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my patrons for supporting me and my podcast. If you would like to join the Last Frontier Club to support this podcast and unlock extra episodes, check out the show notes for more information. While you're there, take a look at my mystery novels. I'll be back soon with another episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.